1: Welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. The German philosopher Martin Heidegger's influence over the last several decades of philosophy is undeniable, but his place in the canon has been called into question in recent years in the wake of the publication of private journals kept throughout his life, including during his involvement with the Nazi Party. This has led to a renewal of an intense series of debates about the relationship between Heidegger's thought and his politics, and the broader implications this relationship may have for philosophy more broadly. Diving into some of these discussions is my guest today, Adam Knowles, here to discuss his recent book, Heidegger's Fascist Affinities, A Politics of Silence, from Stanford University Press in 2019. Combining both philosophical and cultural analysis, the book argues that Heidegger's philosophy of language and his interest in Greek philosophy left him open to some of the reactionary currents that were active in his own time, and that his intellectual orientations left him with an easy path into Nazism. But beyond studying Heidegger in isolation, this book wants to use Heidegger as a gateway to understanding some of the deeper problems that may plague philosophy today. For given how far his influence reaches, the size of the shadow demands we try to be vigilant about potential blind spots. Adam Knowles completed his PhD at the New School for Social Research and is an assistant teaching professor of philosophy at Drexel University. So, Adam Knowles, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for... Uh, the invitation. Yeah, so we always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning. So could you tell us a bit about who you are and what your work and research tends to focus on? Yeah, so as you said, I'm
0: currently assistant professor at Drexel University. Um, beyond publishing this work, I'm also completing a translation of Heidegger's Black Notebooks, the private journals you just mentioned, from the years 1942 to 1948 that hopefully should be out Um, By next year. And I'm also um, working broadly on themes relating to philosophy and fascism, and mostly around the question of how the humanities respond to authoritarian regimes, uh, with Heidegger as a particular example at German philosophy, more broadly speaking as a broader example.
1: Excellent. So to dive into the book, one of the key themes or motifs that runs through your book is what you call Heidegger's Segetics, which you argue is a key for understanding both his philosophy and his politics and how the two relate. So to kick things off a bit, can you give us a sense of what you mean by this?
0: Yeah, so Segetics is derived from the Greek word sege, which is often translated as silence. And it generally refers to a silence produced by humans, as opposed to, say, a a celestial silence or silence emerging from something, from some natural object. And Heidegger begins to, I would say, overtly develop a philosophy based around the question of silence already early in the 1920s. It's quite prevalent in his readings of Christian thinkers and his early lectures in the 1920s. It plays an important role in, in his 1927 magnum opus, Being in Time. And as the decades turn from the late 1920s to 1930s, silence and a broad range of things about unsaying and non-saying, the limits of language, uh, the limits of philosophical concepts, begins to take on a a more and more important role in his thinking. And most importantly, he, he seeks to develop a set of concepts, but also a practice of philosophical silence for how he can maintain what he considers to be unsayable in a certain form of unsayability. This is a long tradition going back to Platonic thinking, where the good is is unsayable; it's unspeakable. It it brushes up against the limits of language, and there's a long sort of history of this what what Heidegger calls segetic questions within the history of philosophy um, that are involved not only The degree to which philosophical language can capture concepts, um, but also the the limits of where philosophical language has to turn to different modes of expression, turn to maybe poetic modes of expression, and move away from the more aggressive forms of conceptuality that might be associated with modern logic, for example. So silence, after being in time, I I argue in, in my book, is the dominant theme and the dominant mode of expression in Heidegger's thinking after being in time.
1: One of the first things you engage with is Heidegger's Volkish sensibilities. But before unpacking how they work in his own thought, you give us some context in much German cultural analysis, since the Volk or people has a very specific meaning in the context Heidegger was engaging in. So can you give us a sense of this background? Um, how did the Germans understand themselves in relationship to their surroundings and how did more contemporary phenomena such as urbanization, industrialization and the like fit into this worldview and how did Volkish thinking function in the intellectual milieu of the Weimar era? Yeah, that's, that's obviously
0: a very complex question with with many different parts to it. So let me just try to begin as, as broadly as possible. Uh, The, the Volkish, um, The folkish movement, as it's often called, has its roots going back to the 19th century. Um, There's much wonderful intellectual historical research on on the origins of this movement, but it becomes particularly crystallized in the post-World War I years, where there's a sense of sort of German defeat, German failure, um, a disillusionment in a certain way, and simultaneously resurgent nationalism, um, which is, of course, A resurgent nationalism that is overtly uh, and pungently anti-Semitic, often overtly so, but often let's say more implicitly so. So, in the nineteen twenties, in in the Weimar era, in the era of the Weimar democracy, there's this very broad spectrum of of thinkers and modes of thinking that, loosely, we can categorize as the folkish movement. It's the, the term itself is more or less sort of a subsequent label that's been. Been used to apply to the movement, um, but it captures an incredibly broad range of often minor journals, uh, often esoteric concerns. It, in its more mystical versions, it it sees the German people as as an ordained, um, providentially chosen people who is bound to its landscape through its language, and there's often a it's combined with a sort of a chauvinistic sense of German superiority, uh, that there's an essential link to, let's say, its own belonging that no other people can possess in its most extreme version. And one of the things that, as we've begun to learn more and more about Heidegger's reading practices in the 1920s, in 2015, a set of letters between uh, Martin Heidegger and his brother Fritz Heidegger were published and in this, Heidegger himself, Martin Heidegger, that is, documents many of his reading practices from the 1920s. And this is a side of his, his biography and a side of his thinking that we didn't necessarily know a lot about. It was um, the sources that could document Heidegger's reading practices in the 1920s were, um, were not yet in, in publication. So through these letters, we began to see Heidegger you know, confessing to his brother and even pressuring his brother to to let's say indulge in and familiarize himself with this this broad range of folkish uh, folkish work that Heidegger's Heidegger is dealing with. Um, and it's important to understand that this isn't just sort of a fringe movement; it's a well-established academic movement within the discipline of philosophy. That which Heidegger flirts with to a certain degree. Um, And distances himself with to a certain degree. The the more one knows about Heidegger's politics, he always sort of makes this double movement of of approaching a particular form of thinking, but also simultaneously distancing himself from it, um, almost as if he's setting up alibis to give plausible deniability. Um, So in the 1920s, he's he's closely reading um, a number of, of, of not only folkish philosophical thinkers, um, but popular literature, pulp novels um, by thinkers like Hans Grimm. And this, this overlooked aspect, I would say, ties together a lot of themes in Heidegger's thinking involving the question of language, questions of silence, um, obviously the question of the people, the folk, and also their belonging. So terms that are prevalent already in, in works like Being in Time they begin to increasingly take on a different political valence in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Um, There's a set of what I call affinities, based on the title of the book, that that Heidegger expresses a close affinity to certain aspects of the folkish movement, um, but often, let's say, puts it into an ontological guise. Um, So he's, I, I think it's fair to say that he's that he's a folkish thinker this is not necessarily new to my book um Pierre Bordeaux for example as almost 50 years ago had encouraged us to read heidegger along the folkish movement uh, but it was often let's say regarded as so tawdry and so non-academic that there was often sort of a willingness among heidegger scholars to distance heidegger from this from this let's say disavowed um this disavowed school of thinking the folkish thinking but I think we learned quite a lot about Heidegger's political evolution by reading him as a Volkisch thinker.
1: One of the key elements of this particular orientation is the way anti-Semitism fits into it. Putting Heidegger in the context of a number of other Volkisch thinkers, you write, quote, what all these thinkers have in common, although they vary in the degree to which they state this explicitly is a perception of Jews as a disturbing element that destroys the essential harmonious silence that binds the German people to itself, to its landscape, and to its language. So can you unpack this a bit and explain how anti-Semitism fits into this worldview?
0: Yeah. So it's when when the Black Notebooks were published um, beginning in 2013, 2014, one of the initial readings of Heidegger's antisemitism was that he had invented what was called ontological antisemitism, that he'd given a philosophical, metaphysical, ontological valence to antisemitism. And one of the reasons why I think it's important to look at Heidegger as a folkish thinker is that we can find this ontological antisemitism prevalent in the 1920s um, and it involves a sort of basic ontolo- ontological duality of the German people bound together essentially within their language and within their place um, but the German language for example according to certain friends of folkish thinking emerges from the landscape and could only emerge from the landscape the particular German landscape the German characteristics of Of reticence of hardiness Um, name all the stereotypes you might want to think about Germans uh, that that emerges from the landscape it's um, that the landscape gives rise to a particular set of traits that aren't that are in fact say the ontological essence of the German people and the element of anti-semitism that is certain thinkers let's say implicitly gesture to and certain thinkers um, overtly endorse is the the duality of the gathered connected German people in their essence and the so-called dissevering or scattering influence of of outsiders, the most important outsider being Jews, um, particularly assimilated Jews living within German society according to the anti-Semitic discourses as a sort of hidden polluting element that destroys German thinking and German language and German connection to the landscape um, from, from within that it's a um, secret enemy that attempts to hide itself in order to lead the German people to their own self-destruction. This, is a well-established folkish discourse going back, you know, at the at the latest going back to the nineteenth century. But when we begin to see, we learned a lot about Heidegger's antisemitism with the publication of the Black Notebooks. Um, he was incredibly careful about how he expressed himself in public, and the sources for documenting his antisemitism were sparse. We. We had passing references that were clearly anti-Semitic. Um, but what we learned f- far more about from the Black Notebooks books is the degree to which Heidegger participates in this well-established, folkish form of anti-Semitism that is justified ontologically and justified philosophically as saying the German people belong amongst themselves, the Jews belong amongst themselves and should be separated from German society um it's not always or not necessarily an eliminationist antisemitism one of the most extreme versions obviously that national socialism embraces but it is a separatist or segregationist antisemitism that that calls for the removal of jews from german society um and calls for you know a purified a purified german belonging um amongst themselves and this is deeply Heidegger exists not only personally in his personal politics, but philosophically is situated well within the space of this anti-Semitic thinking.
1: Another core element of your take on Heidegger is silence, which comes up in a few different places, but you start with his engagement with Greek philosophy, since he saw them in a special or, or as having a special capacity to quote, quote, keep silent about silence. Can you unpack silence in Greek philosophy and the place it would take in Heidegger's developing thought?
0: Yeah, this is, uh, once again, a very complex question, which I'll try to sort of um, answer in the most compact way possible. So to start answering the question, to a certain extent, it's important to understand that we're dealing with not so much with Greek philosophy per se, but with what Heidegger makes out of Greek philosophy. Um, He's often considered a very unorthodox reader, especially of Aristotle and Plato. Um, And he's often considered a very unorthodox and very peculiar translator of Greek philosophy. Nonetheless, that unorthodox approach and unorthodox way of reading um, Greek texts has been incredibly influential. Uh, So we we could have a debate to the extent that this is let's say, a viable portrayal of Greek thinking, or it's a highly peculiar portrayal of Greek thinking that's specific to Heidegger and is effectively a Heideggerian invention. Um, We don't have to adjudicate that question now. It's not essential for us to decide because what I'm interested in is how Heidegger works with the Greeks and what he makes of the Greeks and what role they play within his own thinking. And one of the core elements he defines in Greek philosophy is not only in Greek philosophy, but what he, what he calls Greek dasein, Greek existence, or Greek being, is also very similar to the folkish connection to the landscape and language, is for Heidegger, the Greeks dwell essentially within their place, within their language, and in an essential connection to being. Um, this connection is so essential that kinds of questions that arise in modern philosophy for Heidegger don't even require um, being addressed or even being posed within the Greek existence because it's so close, as Heidegger puts it, to its primordial essence. Um, So there's sort of a strata of silence that exists within Heidegger's conception of Greek philosophy that the His idea of the Greek philosopher doesn't have to pose the questions about their own being that arise in modern philosophy because the Greek philosopher Aristotle uh, exists, for example, exists so closely to tied to their own being that these questions don't have to be posed. Um, so in Heidegger's conception of Greek philosophy, there's it's the pedagogy or the training of philosophy is a training to silence. But there's a almost paradoxical circular element of it that the training towards or to silence has to emerge out of silence, that you have to have a silent disposition already to be suitable for philosophical training in order to further cultivate the capacity for silence. Um, So in his many readings of, of, of thinkers like Parmenides, of thinkers like Heraclitus, earlier readings of of Aristotle or Plato, Heidegger describes philosophical thinking as a capacity for silence. And that, just to sort of reiterate, that capacity for silence has the duality of being a predisposition, but that predisposition enables you to acquire the philosophical capacity for silence, which involves not posing the questions that need not be asked and also in a very aristotelian mode as we learn from aristotle's from the nicomachean ethics also letting the question taper off or dropping the question when it's reached the proper point of precision or the proper degree of exactitude so philosophical and silence involves this, this duality
1: One of the key elements in your approach to Heidegger is his analysis of language. So it's perhaps worth turning to being and time, which you say doesn't give us a thorough or complete philosophy of language that some other philosophers might give us, but he does lay some interesting groundwork by situating it in his existential analysis with themes like logos, discourse, and disclosure, and situating a particular understanding of silence within that. So, can you give us a basic sense of how language and silence function in his thought here?
0: Yeah, once again, a very complex question, and you know, any discussion of being in time is is, is a very complex discussion. But let me try to cut through to a few basic themes. Um, one of the most interesting ways to look at the evolution of Heidegger's thinking is to look at the ways that he goes back and rereads Being in Time, and the ways that he let's say, maintains certain aspects of being in time and continually revises other aspects of being in time. And with regard to language, I would say, he you can see him doing something or performing something in his philosophical language, which exceeds the bounds of his own conceptuality. So what I try to, to, to identify with regard to silence, with regard to language, is a, an, a tension that runs throughout the work, that he's, he's doing something with his own philosophical language that he's not yet able to describe. And I think that's an incredibly productive tension that he um, doesn't yet understand is operating within being in time at the time of writing. But as he goes back and, and rereads the text and revises his understanding of language, you can see him coming to terms with the gap between what he was doing and what he was able to to overtly articulate and what he's what he is lacking in being in time is a way to describe what you might call the positivity of silence the way to describe silence as something other than a lack as a privation or something negative that he's Performing that in a certain way, so most famously in the call to conscience in Division Two of Being in Time, which is a silence call, a silent call. It says, you know, as he famously writes, it says precisely nothing. But where he's struggling ontologically in his analysis of what he's actually doing is that he doesn't yet have a set of metaphysical or ontological concepts to describe that nothingness in positive terms. He he struggles. He 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 reaches a point of unexpressibility in his own thinking when he tries to articulate what what is it that silence can do, and when we see what silence can do as a as a way of non saying, as a way of actively not saying something, um, he he's lacking the ontological framework to describe that. Right? So there's a, there's this tension that he's, I think it's a very productive tension. I think it sort of drives him to, to go back to these questions in a way that, that, he later finds in Aristotle's Metaphysics a set of terms, through Aristotle's concept of sterasis, which is often translated as privation, which he interestingly tra- begins to translate as withdrawal, uh, later in his analyses. Um, so being a time is a, is. That's it's not that there's a failure to have a complete philosophy of language, what, what I think he would say about his own book is that it works with a well-formulated philosophy of language that even Heidegger himself can't yet describe or can't yet put words to, and he, but he begins to um, over the next five to ten years in, in the evolution of his thinking.
1: Yeah, jumping right off of that, in the wake of Being in Time, Heidegger would enter a transitional period between Being in Time and his entrance into national socialist politics. It was in this period that he continued to produce some of his more celebrated works, like the 1929 book on Kant, his seminar, The Fundamental Concepts of Metaphysics. Uh, But you want to draw our attention to a much more obscure 1930 lecture on Aristotelian metaphysics because it shows us some subtle but profound shifts in how Heidegger developed his ideas around a number of themes he detects, even if only implicitly, around things like gathering and on So can you unpack some of the theoretical developments you see happening at this time? Yeah, this is an absolutely fascinating period in Heidegger's, not only Heidegger's life, but also
0: in Heidegger's thinking. Um, so he... Publishes being in time in 1927. He acquires the long coveted professorial chair in Freiburg that he had sort of been aiming for his, his entire, uh, in the early stages of his, of his academic career. Uh, he feels like he's made it. He's been, he has the intellectual and financial security of a, of a what's in German called the Lehrstuhl, the professorial chair. Um, he's been able to return more or less to his his beloved homeland in Southwest Germany. And it's, he begins to, let's say, unfold a very experimental set of analyses and experimental set of questions um, with in an incredibly productive time. So you mentioned the Kant book, for example, which I don't necessarily address, but it it's, um, you know, highly unorthodox reading of Kant, which garners a lot of, almost enemies for Heidegger. There's the 1929-1930 fu- the fundamental concepts of metaphysics, which um, enchanted Jacques Derrida, for example, in his final, final seminar, uh, The Beast and the Sovereign, the second volume. And, but am- amongst this, he there's almost sort of an inconspicuous Aristotle lecture um, on Aristotle's metaphysics theta one through three, It's a very typical style of lecture that Heidegger gives. It's, you know, it's his public lecture course. It's part of his requirements as a professor that he gives a public lecture course every semester. And here he is reading Aristotle in a very slow, very detailed way. So on the one hand, you have this sort of speculative side of Heidegger in the fundamental concepts of metaphysics, where he's exploring very broad, very experimental themes about Um, The human relationship to animals, um, about the existence, the ontological nature of of non-human animals. And on the other hand, you have him in his teaching performing this very slow, very precise, and also very peculiar reading of Aristotle, where you begin to see him draw together, or I argue, you begin to see him draw together abstract ontological themes from being in time, the analysis of language, which has been one of his major themes throughout the 1920s. And suddenly this takes on a new political valence. Um, Things that hadn't yet been overtly invested with political importance suddenly take on a new political importance. Um, Not in reference to directly to any political movement that's happening, not in reference to national socialism, but in the sense that language as an ontological phenomena or language in its being suddenly becomes invested with a new meaning that wasn't necessarily prevalent in Heidegger's thinking. Um, and also we see the emergence of a term that wasn't yet a vested or important philosophical term in, in being a time, and that term is gathering, that, which Heidegger derives from a, uh, a series of translations from the Greek term logos, specifically from the verbal form, the infinitive verbal form of legen, uh, which he translates as gathering. So, an entire set of themes about speaking, reading, um, gathering together, culling together emerge. With a new ontological valence that begins to set the set of let's say the ontological distinctions of a a people gathered together in its language, that in the process of gathering necessarily excludes. Right. So Heidegger will, um, in in his, in his in his translations of, of legen, which um, he'll, he'll he'll compare it to things like harvesting. Right or culling. And he describes processes of harvesting the, the fruits that are of value and, and, and siphoning off or, or selecting off the ones that are of less value, right? So highly, in the sort of abstract, almost analogies about the nature of the process, gathering, harvesting, culling, cultivating, um, set up a sort of process for selection, um, selecting out, that aren't yet overtly invested with the kind of political meaning they could have at the time. Obviously, processes of eugenics, for example, will use the very same kind of language, but he establishes the framework in an abstract analysis of, of, of language as a process of gathering together, of, let's say, writing a poem as the process of selecting out the proper words while leaving off or leaving out the words that don't belong. And so we have, we see him developing an analysis of what is not yet overtly political, but with the slightest sort of modifications can be vested and also with can be vested with deep political meaning, but also with a, a knowledge of not only the growing national socialist movement at the time, but also the folkish movement, we can already see how these echo um, themes developed by folkish thinkers. Uh, Specifically, I I didn't mention in the previous question, his colleague colleague in Freiburg, Ludwig Ferdinand Klaus, who was also a philosopher trained under Husserl, who is more overtly anti-Semitic in his writings in the 1920s, who reveals an extraordinary set of, let's say, affinities with Heidegger's thinking at the
1: time. Delving even further into Greek philosophy, you look at the role of various forms of silence in the ways they function in Greek thought. And we talked a bit about this earlier, but here you later on you hone in on some very masculine forms of. Discipline and control. So, before turning back to Heidegger, can you tell us a bit about the role silence here functions in Greek philosophy?
0: Yeah, so once again, this is the we can raise the question are we dealing with Greek philosophy or are are we dealing with Heidegger's idiosyncratic construction of an image of Greek philosophy? Um, We can save that debate for a later time. But working within what Heidegger makes of Greek philosophy um, and returning back, to, you know, to the themes of 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 silence, what in specifically silence and philosophical training that you have to have a, a silent disposition, which is further cultivated through philosophical training to lead you to a practice of silence as a philosopher. But the fundamental the fundamental trait that one must have in order to reveal this philosophical disposition is a form of self-mastery that you have control over yourself. So you can, it's, you just, you know, think about a text that is incredibly important for Heidegger's philosophical development to look at the Nicomachean ethics and look at the way that um, Aristotle's judgmental of things like gregariousness or Aristotle's judgmental of the the person who can't stop talking or the way Plato, you know, portrays democracies as spaces of uncontrolled and unruly chatter uh, where the masses are are talking too much. Just based on those brief examples, we can sort of think about the role that philosophical training has in um, cultivating silence, but that cultivation requires an underlying capacity for silence, which is Within, for example, Aristotle's thinking, which is something that one is more or less endowed with. Um, If one is not of the proper disposition, then one doesn't even have the underlying set of conditions to cultivate or train philosophical silence. Uh, So within, I would say, fundamentally within Greek thinking and in as a broad distinction, this is this is a male capacity, right? It doesn't mean that all men are endowed with it. There is, for example, within Aristotle or Plato as well, there's always a concern with overly feminine males who don't have who tend to also be considered overly chatty. Um, so this is a particular capacity that is exclusively available to particular men, and the particular a subset of those reveal the disposition necessary to take on the long training for further self-mastery within, within philosophical as let's say, as what's required to become a philosopher and what has to be trained further to develop, develop a, a philosophical practice. So silence is absolutely essential, at least in Heidegger's conception of Greek philosophy as basically the fundamental trait required of a philosopher.
1: Yeah, to develop this a little bit more, uh, Heidegger picks some of these themes up, particularly around you connected to the idea of attunement uh, and the discipline required for philosophical pedagogy, as well as some key political questions he's thinking about at the time. So can you unpack what Heidegger's picking up in the Greek thought and how he's developing it for his own purposes?
0: Yeah, so there's an, an attunement is um one term that is an an entire that Heidegger uses quite frequently beginning in the late 1920s after being in time even within being in time. It's part of an entire sort of metaphorics of harmony, of rhythm, of being in tune, of being in sync and the he develops this out or I should say he develops it within his his readings of Aristotle for example especially his readings of the Nicomachean Ethics that the attuned person or the attuned man who is capable of taking on philosophical thinking or, or capable of being cultivated in philosophical thinking uh, is is fundamentally in harmony with their surroundings right? so he links us to what he'll call stillness. And to understand the stillness, it's not the lack of motion. Um, it's instead motion that is in sync with one's surroundings. Right? So the the man who has the philosophical disposition that can be cultivated within philosophical training, the disposition for silence, reveals a certain stillness that is in tune with the surroundings. Um, This is a highly idealized version of of the Greek man. It's a highly idealized, almost sort of humanistic reading of the Greek, of Greek existence. But it's also one that is tied with the kinds of image that's made of of the German or the German people or the gathered together German collective within folkish thinking. Um, So once again, if we were to read Heidegger in conjunction with his contemporaries, such as Ludwig Ferdinand Klaus, uh, Walter Dare is another folkish thinker. I read him alongside. Uh, we find within Dare and within Klaus, a very similar portrayal of the German people, of the German, most often the German man, who's a reticent character, uh, who doesn't use unnecessary words, who has an underlying disposition for silence. Uh, who expresses himself as sparsely as possible, uh, often just in grunts or in syllables. Um, and in parallel, Heidegger is presenting an idealized idealized version of, of the Greek man, specifically the Greek philosopher, um, as a similarly reticent, a similarly silent figure.
1: Turning back to the Greeks, in parallel with their account of masculinity is one of femininity, which you show carries a certain tension, if not an outright contradiction, simultaneously occupying a place of total silence and withdrawal, while also having occasional excessive outburst. So before returning to Heidegger, can you give us a sense of how femininity functions in Greek thought here? Yeah, so,
0: and here I draw on a a broad range of thinkers such as uh, Lucy Rigorai and and Jacques Derrida, a number of influential readings of the Greeks in in post-war continental philosophy that in opposition to this idealized Greek male who is under full control of his his cultivated self-mastery, who is the sovereign over, over his own, existence and specifically over his own voice and his own utterances um that's posited against this sort of unknowable uncontrollable um figure of the feminine within greek philosophy Uh, with even within greek politics that there is in opposition to the fully self-controlled sovereign masculine figure there is this idea this discourse of the feminine as completely beyond any sort of control, as we know in 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 the Nicomachean Ethics, when uh, Aristotle distinguishes the the soul of the man from the soul of the woman, is that that he claims, and also in Deonima that um, that women lack any form of self control. They can't that they have uh, logos, but can't control their own logos. Right. Um, so Heidegger is. I would say perpetuates a long heritage of creating an idealized vision of the silent philosophical male that is implicitly posited against the, the uncontrollable feminine. And this is something that he occasionally gestures towards, but I think for the most part it operates as, as, an unknowable aspect of his own thinking or, or something that's unthinkable within the space of his own philosophical thinking, that he is, he is perpetuating a long tradition of this philosophical, uh, this fundamental philosophical distinction, which I argue is in many ways what holds together the Western philosophical tradition, tradition is the exclusion of the feminine at times implicitly and at times explicitly. Uh, so I try to to say show the extent to which Heidegger is not only an anti feminist thinker but say the f- uh, the possibility of posing a feminist question is so foreign to his thinking that it's almost not even necessary to call him an anti feminist thinker it's it's the unthinkable I would say within heidegger's thinking um, and that is, is a way of sort of tracing Heidegger's lineage within the history of Western philosophy and, and showing the extent to which he, his thinking fundamentally participates in a set of exclusions, which I believe have held together in a certain way the history of Western philosophy.
1: Yeah, jumping right off of that and turning back to Heidegger more explicitly, you connect Greek femininity to a couple themes in Heidegger's thinking, uh, such as forgottenness or being partially buried over. Femininity here is a sort of partial being, having a place in the polis that is no place. Can you unpack this element Heidegger develops here?
0: Yeah, so... Forgottenness is a major theme in Heidegger's is Heidegger's thinking. Um, and what has been forgotten for Heidegger is always doubly forgotten. It's not only forgotten, but it's very forgottenness has been forgotten. Um, and this applies for Heidegger. This applies to the question of being. Being has been forgotten. And it's moreover been forgotten in its forgottenness. I try to apply the same. This is very much coming out of, of, of Lu Sirigurei's readings of Heidegger and readings of the philosophical tradition, more broadly speaking, is to situate the feminine as doubly forgotten within Heidegger's thinking um, as a way to trace the fundamental sclu- exclusion that structures Heidegger's thinking. And of course, not Heidegger alone in this, to this extent, he's, uh, he's very much working within the established frameworks of, of of 20th century western philosophy um, but one reason i seek to stress that and one reason i seek to stress that within the analysis of heidegger's politics let's say his racism just to put it more bluntly is that this very same forgetting or the feminine as for as belonging to but outside of the polis within greek philosophical thinking that the the feminine is structured as a disturbing element um, it's the enemy within even the the greek man is is constantly feeling threatened by this being that he's reliant upon um, and a great amount of paranoia surrounds the the fact that the that women control the bloodline in a certain way, and that Greek men need to find a way to to take control over this that this same sort of inside out simultaneous status of being inside and outside the polis that is to say inside and outside the um the political community we can find gestures of this within Heidegger's understanding of of anti-Semitism or not even just within Heidegger that this is very much how Jews are portrayed in the most most virulently anti-Semitic strands of folkish thinking that the Jew is portrayed as an outsider who through contingent factors of history belongs within and connected to German society but that the kind of resurgent nationalist political movements that are arising in the 1920s, their goal has to be uh, to remove this outsider, this outside entity, um, either through force or through, um, well, effectively through force, most likely. But so there's once again, the treatment of the feminine and the forgetting of the feminine for me, reveals important affinities and important,
1: Um, links to Heidegger's anti-Civic politics. Turning to the final chapter, you argue along with what we were discussing in the first few questions that Heidegger and others had a very romanticized vision of the Volk and their relationship to their surrounding land. And it was that vision that gave Heidegger a sense of a philosophical mission as a guide for the German people in that National Socialism was a means to achieve that end. So can you explain Heidegger's sense of a mission here and what role he thought Hitler and the National Socialists could play in helping him realize that mission?
0: Yeah, it's a very difficult, obviously very delicate question. And it gets to the core of of Heidegger's politics. So in what way... Was Heidegger a National Socialist? Um, let's. We, we. I think to answer this question, it's best to begin with some of the fundamental facts. We know that Heidegger joined the party most likely in mid March, nineteen thirty-three. His party membership was issued on May first, nineteen thirty-three. But at that point, during the early year, early months. Sorry, early months of Nazi rule there was a massive backlog of applications for the party. Uh, So he probably filled out his application in mid-March, six weeks earlier than it's issued. Um, Simultaneously, we know through documents contained in the German Federal Archives and elsewhere that he is participating in a local political movement led by professors in Heidelberg and Freiburg, both in at the time in the state of Baden, important historical universities within the German university system. He's participating in a movement to preemptively lay a plan for Nazifying the university, even before the initial anti-Jewish measures had been passed by by the party. Uh, The major anti-Jewish measures come in early April. So in mid-March, Heidegger is participating in a movement whose mission statement is according to the internal documents to um, ensure that German universities wear a German face. That's a paraphrase, but I think it's essentially a quote from the document Um, that German university instructors are ethnically German. So he's already planning how to, restructure his own university, Freiburg University um, restructure it as a place cleansed of Jewish influence um, which of course means removing Jewish professors and later enacting quotas on the number of Jewish students allowed to enroll so there's the fundamental facts are we have someone who is we can see in his his political life is dedicated to an anti-Semitic nationalist movement Um, what is the nature of Heidegger's national socialism is on the one hand there is this vulgar highly personal uh, power politics that he's involved in we see him take on the rectorate equivalent to being a university president um, in April 1933 and we also can trace his maneuvers to try to take on a position of power within berlin i think it was i and i would if we had more time i would i would work through the documents that, that show this i think it was his goal to oversee the reform of german universities according to nazi principles i think he wanted to be something like you know the minister of education or to have an equivalent function within the nazi state So all of this is happening within Heidegger's life. Those are um, more or less sort of unimpeachable facts that we can prove through the documents. But simultaneously, we have a sort of philosophical vision of what National Socialism is. Um, And it very much involves for him a return to a form of belonging to the soil, um, to the German race, of course, as well. He is, a, I, I, he is a folkish racist, I would say, which means that he, he doesn't so much think of the German race as um, tied to the blood aspect of a blood and soil ideology, but he very much thinks about a form of racial belonging that is tied to the landscape, that the German people emerge out of this particular piece of land with all of its climactic aspects. um, The German language emerges in its modes of expression as an environmental phenomenon. This is classic folkish thinking. It's also classic um, racist and racial thinking that we could go back to as far at least as Kant. If we read Kant's anthropology, we can find similar strains of, of thinking. And it's a form of it's a conception of race and racial belonging that is in some ways more dominant within national socialism than the newer forms of biological racism that tie the German people to the, to, to the idea of blood. Um, so for Heidegger, a, what has disturbed the German people's relationship to their landscape is on the one hand technology, um, Technology that, let's say, pulls us away from our the place where we're existing because it, 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 although it's you know something like an airplane which moves far too fast and disturbs our relationship to space and simultaneously our relationship to time. Um, but another polluting element that is disturbing the German's relationship to their landscape, according to Heidegger, is is the Jews, um, and the. But these are also always tied together. One can speak about urbanization. One can speak about industrialization and speak in an anti-Semitic code, which Heidegger is deeply immersed in without having to overtly express anti-Semitic statements. So we already had, I would say, prior to the Black Notebooks, we already had, let's say, Heidegger's affinities to this anti-Semitic suspicion of of technology, of progress. and But the Black Notebooks give us the philosophical understanding of the ontological underpinnings of Heidegger's particular fidelity to these discourses. Um, so he saw the National Socialism, just to, to wrap up the question, he saw National Socialism as a movement of of cultural regeneration, of cultural renewal. He thought it would involve a renewed turn to the landscape uh, while turning away from technology, uh, but he was simultaneously always willing to make highly pragmatic compromises with whatever National Socialism actually was in its existence.
1: One key theme you bring up regarding Heidegger's Volkish orientation is his connection with the land, most famously the Black Forest, where he himself spent much of his time in a small hut he built himself. So this theme comes up most explicitly in a small essay that he presented over the radio titled, Why Do I Stay in the Provinces? It's here and in other similar works that there's a certain idolization of rural life where everyone, or at least everyone who belongs, quote-unquote, is naturally attuned to certain rhythms, and there's no need to explain anything since everyone there is, quote, naturally a philosopher. So while it would be easy to read this as a simple, if romanticized view of rural dwelling to be contrasted with the hustle of urban life, you argue that there's a lot going on on here politically in these pages as well. So can you unpack what you see going on here
0: Yeah, I think that's an utterly an absolutely fascinating short essay so uh, why do I remain in the provinces, why do I stay in the provinces? And it's it in many ways encapsulates the entire story of Heidegger's relationship to National Socialism. So just to offer some context to the the essay, um as I mentioned, Heidegger reveals the ambition to try to take on a position of power in Berlin. He was well, very well situated within his within the region, uh, within Freiburg, and within the region of Baden. Um, he was well connected with part local party politics, and I would say well informed of the situation, and probably could have remained rector in Freiburg or sort of a local influential figure for as long as he would have wanted to. Uh, But his ambitions were far more than just being in a small university in Southwest Germany. He wanted proximity to power. Um, He wanted proximity to Hitler, I would say. And, but he's not the only one who wants to. So he's part of a group of philosophers Uh, Ernst Krieg and Alfred Bäumle are among them as well. Er, Erich Jentsch. These are names that one might not have heard of, but were well established figures um, at the time. Someone like Bäumle had a reputation equivalent to Heidegger's international and national reputation. Uh, Probably even was more well known, uh, not only within Germany, but abroad at the time. And all of these figures are vying for the position of what basically being the Führer, as you might say, of German philosophy, that the sort of mandates from above at the time were to have each of the disciplines informally under the leadership of of a leader who sort of structured that discipline according to Nazi principles. And there's a lot of behind the scenes fighting that's going on around, around philosophy, which is one of the most important disciplines at the time. I mean, the, the the fame of German universities in the 19th century comes from the discipline of philosophy. So the Nazis are very interested in who has control over philosophy and what they're doing. And Heidegger is one of the, the pretenders to the throne, vying for primacy over the discipline of philosophy. By, I would say early to mid 1934, he's been pushed aside by a number of internal machinations, basically uh, Bäumle and Krieg, Alfred Bäumle and Ernst Krieg and Erich Jentsch, the other, his, his competitors temporarily got together and sent in an, you know, a smear and attack dossier to the Ministry of Education in Berlin, of around a 35-page dossier, which is in a, um, the Prussian State Privy Archives in Berlin, and they persuade the Minister of Education uh, to, let's say, they they basically persuade him that Heidegger, Heidegger is not a viable candidate for this position. And they manage through their own temporary alliance, although they would soon become rivals themselves, they manage to push aside Heidegger. So his political ambitions are national level, political ambitions are more or less thwarted by this time. And suddenly he begins to reinvent himself. Right. So, due to this failure, his failure to negotiate a position of power, he begins to rethink his place as a professor within Nazi Germany. Um, he portrays this in his own denazification procedure. Uh, sorry, his own denazification proceedings as entering an apolitical phase of his life. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think there's any such thing as an apolitical professor at a Nazi university. I think we have to look at this as a second distinct phase in Heidegger's political career under National Socialism. And it's heralded by this short essay called Why Do I Remain in the Provinces, which was um, read on the radio twice, once regionally and once in Berlin, and also published in the local Nazi party, organ. Um, and this is the moment where Heidegger reinvents himself and portrays himself as the rooted man of the soil with close ties to the rural peasantry, with close ties to the farming community. Uh, the hut, as you mentioned, that he built himself was, uh, he already had the hut, but and he'd been spending a lot of time there already, but he suddenly, let's say in a, in a public relations stunt, to, I don't think it's an overstatement, just call it that, in a public relations stunt, he portrays himself in a new light through this short essay, where he shows himself as, uh, you know, this reticent character moving effortlessly within the space of the the reticent peasants who were just going about their daily business of tending to the cows, tending to the harvest, mending the fences, um, worrying about their animals and their crops, that he belongs effortlessly and, and wordlessly among these people. Um and this is simultaneous to a sort of a reinvention of Heidegger not as the attempted ideologue of national socialism but instead as a an academic who produces the kind of work that is desired by the party and is, is and is safe to not even not only safe for national socialism but is actually what they want um they one of the things that the party wants from philosophy professors is to participate in what's called Heimatkunde, which to translate would be sort of Homeland studies. So the short essay, Why do I stay in the provinces is I would say his first entry into showing the regime, I'm going to produce Homeland studies. I'm going to produce the kind of scholarship and the kind of writing, that is desired by the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Culture. Um, so it's a very rich five-six page text, which I think encapsulates so much about this this second phase of Heidegger's, the second political phase of Heidegger during National Socialism. And it's a phase that I I think is often overlooked by the scholarship, which tends to focus f- it tends to focus rightly on the rectorate, but to the um, to the, at the cost of overlooking, you know, the final 11 years of National Socialism.
1: To continue discussing the, or or you connect this romanticization of rural life to some of Heidegger's developing thought throughout the 1930s and that the black notebooks give us more access to where he described culture as being in a process of slow, but steady decay and also described a hope that the decay would reach a tipping point past which things could perhaps get back on track. Heidegger often writes in these rather abstract and elusive terms, but you pull a variety of threads together between the notebooks, his previously published writings, and the events going on around him to paint a fairly damning picture of the relationship between his philosophical development and his politics. So can you unpack what the notebooks add to the picture of Heidegger here and how they help us better understand the implications of some of his previous writings? Yeah, so I think that
0: when the black notebooks were published, we had this you no know, initial wave of very 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 good but also often very quick reactions. And those tended to rightly focus on the identifiable passages where Heidegger expresses is terribly violent anti-Semitism. And then there was sort of, let's say a period of, well, a period of going back to reread the notebooks. And I think we're still in that period of of asking, well, what do they mean for Heidegger's thinking? Um, So there's, they're an incredibly rich resource. I think to read alongside the other texts that he produces at the time. So that means the lecture courses that he gives. He they're they're all published more or less by this point. Um, we have access to thousands of pages of manuscripts, um, the contributions to philosophy, for example, and then we have access to his published works uh, and. I think there's something quite peculiar that's happened within Heidegger scholarship is that we take texts that are rightly famous, such as the introduction to metaphysics or the origins of the work of art. Um, probably Heidegger's most influential text in, in an interdisciplinary manner is, is the origins of the work of art. It's produced, the conditions of productions, the origins of the work of art are, are under fascism. This is a text written under fascism. And it's, it is to me peculiar that this is often read in separation from that fundamental fact of its conditions of production. So I think one thing the Black Notebooks does is, is give us not only the impetus, but also a roadmap to go back and reread the texts from this time with an eye towards the fundamental fact that these are texts produced by a professor of philosophy working at a Nazified university um, and not only working at a Nazified university, but flourishing philosophically at a Nazified university um, and flourishing personally and, and professionally at a Nazified university. So I think the black notebooks give us a very good sense of that. And they, what what they, for me, they show is the, help us to understand are the moves that Heidegger makes post 1934 after the rectorate after the failure of his national political ambitions to remake his his fundamental philosophical questions in the image of what the party wants a philosophy professor to produce so what do they want the philosophy professor to produce they want their philosophy professors to participate as I already said in homeland studies that usually means not only Germanic studies, that means regional Germanic studies. And they want you to participate in the sort of Phil Hellenism that was quite prevalent in Nazi Germany, right? So linking the Germans to the Greeks, a very active, and this is something that, that Hitler himself took quite seriously. Um, so this is what he- we can see Heidegger doing. We Watch him turn to the poet uh, Friedrich Hurdelin in the early Nazi period. Hurdelin uh, being, um, you know, fitting within the demand for regional homeland studies. He's he's uh, from Swabia, so uh, he's Schwabish in, in German. Um, and we also see Heidegger turning to a reliable body of Greek thinkers, uh, many of whom he hadn't dealt with in detail before. So. We can see, likewise, we can see how this public, this public aspect of Heidegger's thinking—either his lecture courses or the public texts—below, beneath them is a strata in the black notebooks where he, where he vests the very things he's doing in public. In private, he vests them with overt anti-Semitic residences. So they're almost like a set of. I read them as a. Um, an accompanying text, almost like a set of commentaries or addenda to his his public philosophical work, where we can see that questions that he may not, even during the Nazi period, that he may not publicly vest with anti-Semitic resonances. In private, he does it. Right? And that's often read as, as a defense for Heidegger, that he doesn't publicly express anti-Semitism. But I think we have to remember that, um, keep in mind the public relation that not national socialism was always very, very good and very concerned with public relations vis-a-vis um, vis-a-vis the that's international their international re- reputation. and it wouldn't necessarily have been desirable uh, for a philosophy professor to to or for a professor in general um, to publicly express anti-Semitism but they're instead supposed to maintain a sort of level of um, level of reserve in their public pronouncements or in their writings that Heidegger works, that Heidegger is, remains loyal to. Right? So he's, that Black notebooks help us understand how, how good he was at navigating the demands, and not only the demands, but also the incentive structure of working within a fascist space of the Nazified German
1: university. Developing some of this a bit more, there's been a debate in the last few years around the kind of philosophical status of the black notebooks. Uh, So for some, the notebooks are this kind of final straw in continuing to offer patience or forgiveness to Heidegger while others have stressed the notebooks element of the Black notebooks to emphasize that while they may paint a damning portrait, they aren't philosophically substantial enough to warrant these sorts of enormous changes to our understanding of his philosophical thought. So given your own orientation and what you've been developing for us, what is, in your opinion, the philosophical status of the Black notebooks, and how should we read them in light of their genre, style, and their place in Heidegger's uh, larger kind of complete works in his life. Yeah, this is one of the questions that sort of plagued Heidegger
0: scholarship in the last uh, six, seven years since since it's been grappling with the black notebooks. Um, the, I think it's essential to read them as philosophical texts. And I, I think it's been a failure among certain aspects of certain strands within Heidegger scholarship to confront them as philosophical texts. I, their style is often indistinguishable from contemporary manuscripts. So I mentioned the Contributions to Philosophy. The Contributions to Philosophy are the, merely the most famous and earliest uh, earliest volume from a series of six or seven Manuscripts on the event, which now amounts to several, several, multiple thousand pages, uh, which have long been read as announcing a, a, a sort of a second phase in Heidegger's thinking. Um, this has been pursued since the publication of the Contributions to Philosophy in, I believe, in 1989. That's a well-established line within Heidegger's scholarship. So the large portions of the Black notebooks books echo verbatim, certain manuscripts from this series of, of manuscripts on the event. So at that level, they simply demand and read as philosophical texts. But we can also pull back and, and ask, well, what is it that we're doing as philosophers and also as, um, as thinkers who are interested in questions about the history of philosophy? And I insist that attending to the conditions of production of philosophical texts, is always a philosophical question. Um, and that's why for me, it's essential to remember when we read any Heidegger text, where does it emerge from? You know, it emerges from primarily a, uh, a philosopher who worked within the German university system, that the German university system was the enabling condition of production of Heidegger's thinking. And that doesn't have to determine all aspects of our reading or interpretations of Heidegger. But I think it demands to be taken into account. Now, specifically, when we're dealing with the era from 1933 to 1945, as I sort of said already, is that we have to remember that this is a thinker working within and flourishing within the Nazified fascist German university system. Um, so... The Black Notebooks are admittedly Heidegger's most autobiographical text in certain moments. So we find him being particularly autobiographical during the rectorate, that is from April 33 to 34. And then we find him once again, almost to close the circle, being very autobiographical in the very late late months of, of the Second World War, and specifically during the time of his denazification. So from Around May forty-five until January forty-six, we have two intensely autobiographical moments, um, where we have several hundred pages where he's reflecting on his own himself, his own treatment by the by the denazification commission, for example, and he's doing it in ways that are rare within Heidegger's writing. But I don't see. I, I I'm failed to be persuaded by it. By a justification that says, "Well, this is merely autobiographical, and therefore not deserving of philosophical analysis." I would say, on the contrary, precisely because it's autobiographical, it's all the mo- and because it's so unique within Heidegger's, you know, thousands of the hundred or more volumes that we have of Heidegger, these pages are so unique that they're specifically demanding of philosophical analysis because it tells us we. S- we learn so much about what he thinks about the institutions that make his thinking possible. And the historical shifts around, for example, um let's say the, the German defeat in World War II, the failure of the of the National Socialist Project, the failure of Heidegger's ambitions within that National Socialist Project, and the occupation of, of post-war Germany. There's these are not arbitrary events these are events that are tied as one can as i try to show that are tied to very specific shifts in heidegger's thinking
1: right? Any, so I, just uh,
0: to summarize i just go ahead oh sorry just to sort of reiterate the i i the challenge i think is it that needs to happen in heidegger in heidegger studies um and much of it is i don't i don't want to imply that it's not is to go back and reread these classic texts, um, not only from the Nazi period, but also before and after, through the lens of the Black Notebooks, with the Black Notebooks as a sort of roadmap for rereading Heidegger.
1: Yeah, so in the epilogue of the book, you try to connect what you've developed uh, throughout the book to some larger questions about the relationship between the humanities and politics. So part of the difficulty in addressing Heidegger's politics is not only the way in which Heidegger's thought was tied to a number of different cultural threads, but also has embedded in itself in a number of other fields throughout the humanities. No matter where we go today, if we want to do humanities scholarship, we are often working to some degree in his shadow. So simply no longer reading Heidegger isn't a serious option for us. So in closing, what do you think humanities scholars today should do with Heidegger? What questions need to be asked about his work? And what might it say about our own potential blind spots and potential for political complicity? Or to ask maybe a bit more bluntly and in a way that might force the question a bit more aggressively, what would it mean to denazify philosophy in the humanities more broadly today?
0: Yeah, thank you for the question. And this, this, I, These are the questions that, that drive me. And these are the questions that, that I always have in mind when, when dealing with Heidegger. I always try to read Heidegger, not merely because of the curiosity around this one particular case, but because he offers us a lens to understand how the humanities respond to authoritarian and fascist regimes. Um, we it's its easy to forget, and it often gets distorted, I would say, in, in popular perceptions of National Socialism. that when we go back and look at the complicity of the universities and complicity of the professoriate, we of course think about scientists, we think about weapons production, we think about gas production, um, the development of Suclum B, for example. Uh, we think about uh, the demographers who participated in the plans to colonize Eastern Europe. Um, and all of that is, or the, you know, the, the doctors who participated in um, experiments in concentration camps or in the euthanasia program of mentally and physically disabled. And all of that is justified and all of that is, is essential. But we often forget that in 1933, when we had a fledgling fascist movement with a, a, a leader whose popular perception was still um, problematic, that as this movement needed to establish itself and needed to needed legitimacy, the most important professors and the most important, uh, the most important professors who were on the front lines of embracing national socialism and letting it legitimacy came from the humanities that on the forefront in 1933 were the, were, were disciplines like history, uh, philosophy, German studies, anthropology but they responded to the call and d- played a very essential role in situ- in establishing the legitimacy of a movement that was desperately lacking legitimacy. Um, in 1933 we're dealing with a movement that is looked at by the public as sort of a bunch of street thugs, as, as illegitimate, as anti-intellectual and, and It's the humanities professors like Martin Heidegger, like the other philosophers I mentioned, Hans Krieg, Alfred Boimler, who help lend legitimacy to this movement. And I think we have to keep that in mind as we, we, we work, as we not only think about our own place within the discipline of philosophy, think about the discipline of philosophy more broadly speaking um it's unlike i would well it, to think about post war germany it it did not denazify There's, it's it's did german society at all denazify I, n- the scholar scholarship would say well it denazified in a very insufficient way um the denazification process across all four occupation zones was a relatively farcical process that made extraordinary compromises for the sake of German flourishing and economic vital, uh, economic vibrance that it made those compromises in advance, especially the allies and philosophy and the universities participated and benefited from that more or less sort of amnesty that was given. Um, So when we think about Heidegger, we have to, think about how he benefited so immensely from a a process of, let's say, willful non-Denazification. And for how long, you know, entirely dubious stories about Heidegger were allowed to allowed to still be expressed in legitimate scholarship, Um, including the sort of myth that dominated Heidegger's studies until the Black Notebooks, which was that Heidegger was a devout Nazi, but not an anti-Semite. I mean, it's it's an absurd premise that somehow was allowed to dominate Heidegger scholarship. So I think we have to ask, you know, what enabled this? What allowed for Heidegger to be, um, for Heidegger to be perhaps the most influential post-war philosopher? Uh, within Western philosophy, he, he, I believe, is the most cited philosopher, just concretely speaking. Um, So the the question that drives me is is to get to the question, what would it mean to denazify philosophy would mean to not ask not only what enabled that, um, but what does it say about the discipline of philosophy that it did enable that? And I, I don't think there's a simple answer to that question. And I think that's an open question philosophers broadly speaking especially those who work within the realm of influence of thinkers like heidegger we we have to be vigilant to um i do think it's essential precisely because um i mean i think it's essential to read heidegger we have to keep reading heidegger precisely because we we see the ways in which the humanities um are not don't, let's say we see the ways in which the humanities can become the willing participants in fascist movements. Um, And I think that raises a lot of questions about our own universities, our own institutions. And I think should constantly remind us, just as I ask, what are the conditions of production of Heidegger's thinking that academics in whatever discipline should always be vigilant to the question what are the conditions of production of my own of my own work, of my own research? And what would it mean to, say, undertake a rigorous analysis of the political entanglements, the lines of complicity that we already exist in?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent uh, thoughtful way to end. So as a final question, what are you working on now?
0: Yeah, so in the previous academic year, I was in Germany with a fellowship from the uh, Volkswagen Foundation and Andrew W. Mellon's Foundation, and I was pursuing archival research on the discipline of philosophy in the Nazi era. The sort of guiding question for me is, what did it mean to be a philosopher active in, at a German university during the fascist period? And what did it mean to be a young academic who was trying to make their career? What did it mean to be a mid-career academic? What did it mean to be a well-established philosopher such as Heidegger, um, who's sort of in the middle, who's you know already a full professor by the time the Nazis come to power? Um, so unfortunately that work was disrupted by, by COVID, by the global disruptions that we're all coming to terms with. I do hope to make it back to Germany when the conditions allow to return to sort of, you know, look at the careers of, of academics, who openly embrace national socialism, who tried to keep a distance from Nazism, but nonetheless made their career. What is it? So someone like hans Georg Gadamer, for example, what, what does it mean to get a professorship during the Nazi period, but somehow managed to come out of the Nazi period in 1945 and present yourself to, uh, to the allies and to the occupying forces as someone with a clean political past. So I'm interested in these career trajectories of philosophers of all different political stripes who remained, uh, who, who were at, who active at German universities during the Nazi period.
1: Excellent. So Adam Knowles, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you, Stephen, for the thoughtful discussion, for the the close reading of the book.